good? Okay. So thank you for coming this morning. Um, uh, very commonly, just for the sake of potential future experience, uh, these uh, Dharma talks often start with uh, a reading from from scripture, from one of the suttas or sutras of the Buddhist tradition, and we put our hands like this while that's being recited in respect. But uh, I'm going to start with a reading that's not actually from one of the suttas or sutras. Um, so this opening reading was written by Tong Songchol Sunim, uh, who was a, a Korean monk. He, he died in 1993. Uh, he was one of the, the great Song masters of the last century. Song is Korean Zen. Uh, he was referred to by some as the living Buddha of Korea. And this is what he wrote. There is one thing. It existed before the earth and skies came into being, and it will exist long after they have all disappeared. The heavens and earth could appear a thousand times and be destroyed 10,000 times, but this one thing would not change at all. This one thing is incomprehensibly huge. The entire universe is just a spray of water in comparison to this ocean. This one thing is incomparably brighter than a trillion billion suns and moons, and it constantly lights up everything. This absolute great light is beyond light and dark, and yet it lights everything that exists. This one thing is beyond description, beyond discrimination, and it is absolute. But even the term absolute is entirely inadequate to describe it. To call it one thing is a lie, because one thing is only a name and a terribly inadequate name. All Buddhas of the universe could spend eternity describing it, but such an effort would be insignificant. If you were to become enlightened, then you yourself would know, but you would never be able to explain it to anyone. This one thing is called Buddha by those who have become enlightened. It is beyond the agony of life and death and those who know it become free-flowing for the rest of eternity. But those who have not become enlightened to this one thing continue to struggle and suffer in the sea of life and death, in the everlasting cycle of the four forms of birth and the six realms of sentient existence. Even the tiniest form of life includes this one thing. Both an enlightened Buddha and an unenlightened ant possess it. The only difference between them is that one knows it and the other doesn't. It is so brilliant and astounding that even the Buddha and Bodhidharma cannot look at it when they raise their eyes. They can open their mouths but cannot describe it. They and all our other Zen patriarchs become merely blind and mute in the face of it. All one can do is to become enlightened to it and then become totally free-flowing in it. My, my, by, by training, I'm a psychologist. We were talking earlier about this one has to tell everybody that. Uh, the first thing he ever says about me. Uh, I'm not the sort of psychologist that does therapy, though. Um, that's, that's not my shtick. That's not, mental health is not my wheelhouse. That's not my training. Um, but I actually want to talk about something today that's uh, a parallel between Buddhism and mental health. Or, or maybe it would be better to say uh, a Buddhist idea, a Buddhist concept that can have therapeutic benefits in terms of, of mental health. Depression is sometimes referred to as the common cold of mental health. 
Uh, it's not the most common mental health problem, but it's certainly familiar to, to most people. Most people are familiar with the idea of depression, the kind of symptoms that tend to go along with depression, um, things like you know, loss of energy, loss of motivation, irritability, changes in sleeping patterns, changing in eating habits, things like that. Um, it can also come with feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness, kind of a, a, a deeply depressed person may be convinced that their life just doesn't have any value, uh, that they themselves are irredeemably flawed in some way. At the opposite side, we've got the trait of narcissism, which has gotten a lot more airtime recently in America uh, for rather obvious reasons. A narcissism, in some ways, it's kind of the mirror image of depression um, in that a person who's, who's highly narcissistic um, sees themselves as unquestionably superior, the greatest at everything, perfectly entitled to all praise and every reward. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an air of superiority that's very fragile because it, it doesn't have a foundation, right? It's, it's not based on anything. So a person who's highly narcissistic tends to be really sensitive and self-protective of that sort of artificial sense of personal grandiosity and entitlement and all that kind of stuff. So you can think about both of, you can think about both of these descriptions as sort of like, uh, you can imagine a kind of a number line, right? And we got opposite ends, right? opposite ends of that number line. And that might be easiest. Think of it sort of a, a dimension of self-esteem, self-respect, right? Uh, at one end is the person who's, who's deeply depressed, uh, whose self-image is completely negative. And at the other end is this person who's extremely narcissistic, who has this unrealistically elevated kind of self-image. And if you think about it that way, kind of everybody's on that number line, right? We're all on there somewhere. Um, hopefully, most of us are more in the middle, maybe toward the positive side, but not like too, too far out to a pathological degree. And there's a notion in Buddhism, specifically in the, uh, the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, the greater vehicle part of, of Buddhism that our Korean son lineage is a part of, that, that I think is relevant to this number line and especially to the people on kind of the opposite extremes of that dimension. Um, Buddha Datu. It's a word that literally means Buddha element. Uh, but in English, it's usually translated when, you see, when you, authors refer to it and stuff. They usually use the term Buddha nature. Uh, the Korean word that's kind of the equivalent term is Bulsang, uh, Bulsang, Buddha nature. Uh, the first use of this term, if you look at the ancient writings, the first use of the term appears to be in uh, a, a scripture in the Mahayana tradition, what's called the Mahaparinirvana Sutra. It's the story that tells, it's a very long sutra, that tells, tells the story of kind of the end of the Buddha's life and his death and the things that happened after he died. Um, that text states that all sentient beings possess this thing, this Buddha Datu. They have this inherent potential to achieve Buddhahood. 
the oldest of the, there's a whole literature in, in the Mahayana scriptures, what's called the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. The Heart Sutra that we read earlier is, is a piece of that. It's kind of the shortest of those texts. And they also say that the fundamental nature of mind is luminous and inherently perfect. Everyone has the mind of Buddha. There's a closely related term that's also used in Buddhism. Uh, the, the kind of Sanskrit version of it is Tathagata Garbha. Uh, the Korean for that one is Yorejang. Uh, Yorejang means Tathagata Garbha. Now that's a word. Tathagata Garbha is a little more complicated. I'm going to break this one down. I want to talk about the parts of this word and try to kind of help you understand it a little bit more. And I hope you'll see why it matters. Um, so first of all, Tathagata, the beginning of that word, Tathagata. Tathagata is a word that you see all the time in the Buddhist scriptures, especially the old Pali suttas, the oldest scriptural text. Um, literally, it can mean, depends on how you kind of break the word down, it can mean thus come one or thus gone one. The implication is that it's referring to someone who understands things as they are, who um, understands the world as it truly is, kind of has really grasped the true nature of, of life and reality. And in the sutras, the Buddha uses that term sometimes to talk about himself. He refers to himself as the Tathagatagarbha, this title. Uh, sometimes he uses it to refer to other Buddhas, previous Buddhas, Buddhas before him, or Buddhas in other realms of existence in other parts of the universe. So that word, Tathagata, in, in, Buddha, in Korean, that's yore. So yore, uh, yore bul, right? That's it. Uh, garba literally means womb, uh, though it's sometimes interpreted as meaning embryo, which is the product of a womb, or seed, which if you think about it is kind of the plant equivalent of an embryo, or uh, essence, like the, the fundamental quality of an embryo, kind of the basic quality of an embryo. So if you put that back together, right, as you put those words together and we go back to that original term, Tathagata Garbha, what would that mean? That means the womb or seed or embryo of a, a thus come one, or more simply, containing a thus come one. And since thus come one means a Buddha, Tathagata Garbha means containing a Buddha. Now that's why this term Tathagatagarbha and the word I was talking about a minute ago, Dharmadhatu or Buddhadhatu, that's why those get sort of treated as kind of meaning the same thing or referring to the same idea. The reason all sentient beings have the inherent potential for Buddhahood is because they each contain a Buddha. Or as the, the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh used to put it, every one of us is a Buddha-to-be. So if you take that a step further, uh, if you think about that, what I was just describing, in the context of the idea of rebirth, in the, the Buddhist understanding of the nature of the universe and time as being a cycle, that everything comes around and goes around, the conclusion would be that if all sentient beings contain the seed of Buddhahood, 
then it's inevitable that all sentient beings will become Buddhas in the fullness of time. Uh, there's a book, the, the Princeton Dictionary of Buddhism, Buswell and Lopez, who wrote the Princeton Dictionary of Buddhism, they write that Tathagatagarbha thought seeks to answer the question of why ignorant beings are able to become enlightened by suggesting that this capacity is something innate in the mind of all sentient beings which has become concealed by adventitious afflictions. Uh, it seems to have evolved from a relatively straightforward in inspiration that all beings are capable of achieving Buddhahood to um, a more complex doctrine of an almost genetic determination that all beings would eventually become Buddhas. Now, note, note the choice of words there. They said, would. They didn't say can. They didn't say may. They didn't say might. They said, would. All beings would eventually become Buddhas. Eventually, all those Buddha seeds will sprout. And all sentient beings will fully manifest their inherent, luminous, perfect Buddhahood. So, from this point of view, this is our birthright as sentient beings, as sattvas, right? We all possess the luminous, inherent, perfect, sublime mind of a Buddha waiting to be discovered, recognized, and expressed. Remember how Tong Son Chosunim put it in what I read earlier. Even the tiniest form of life includes this one thing. Both an enlightened Buddha and an unenlightened ant possess it. The only difference between them is that one knows it and the other doesn't. Now, I don't know how this sits with you. I don't know how this idea sits with you. But to me, this is a terribly therapeutic notion. Every mental health problem involves a person's self-image in some way as a cause or effect, or both, more often both. An aspect of depression and of anxiety is the belief that the person holds about themselves that they are in some way insufficient, right? They're not brave enough. They're not good enough. They're not worthy enough. But if in reality, they possess this great treasure, if the fundamental nature of their mind is pure, if the capacity for complete and total enlightenment comes pre-installed, it's an inherent property of being a sentient being, then no matter what we've done or not done, no matter what we've said or left unsaid, we have this piece of ourselves that is perfect and complete. At the opposite extreme, the person with a grandiose, overblown sense of themselves, overconfident in their abilities and convinced of their superiority, that person has no reason to look down on anyone, since they are completely surrounded by Buddhas. 
If every Buddha seed inevitably sprouts into a Buddha and every gnat and chipmunk and lizard and fish and person possesses that seed of Buddhahood, then this room, this town, this continent, this planet is replete with Buddhas to be. So to put it briefly, and this is the title, <laughs> to put it briefly, Buddha nature cures everybody. The depressive person needs to be reminded that she is inherently pure and sublime. The narcissistic person needs to be reminded that everyone else is inherently perfect and sublime. So when we get to the end of the service today, and we chant the four bodhisattva vows, and we get to the fourth one, remember that you can look at those vows and think that these are impossible vows. No one can do all these things. But the fourth one, if you think about things this way, the fourth one's not an impossible vow. It's an inevitability. So I bow to you, a Buddha to be. Sun Bul Ha may you, I, and all beings manifest in life.